We'll hear argument next in case 07-1125, Fitzgerald versus Barnstable School Committee. Mr. Rothfeld. Please, the Court. The Court of Appeals in this case. Excuse me, Your Honor. Actually, never used this before, so it's a learning experience for me, Your Honor. It's enough. Okay. I can't see you. <laughs> that, that may be an advantage, Your Honor. But we can hear you. Uh, if, if I should modify, please, please let me know. Uh, the Court of Appeals in this case made two fundamental and separate errors, each of which should require reversal of its decision. First, all agree that the question whether Title IX precludes the use of Section 1983 to enforce the Constitution is a matter of congressional intent. Yet the Court of Appeals entirely disregarded all of the ordinary indicia of congressional intent, the statutory text, the statutory background structure and evolution, the unquestioned legislative purpose. Each of these considerations points conclusively towards a single outcome. Congress did not mean Title IX to preclude the use of Section 1983 to enforce the Constitution. Second, rather than consider any of this direct and compelling evidence of what Congress actually had in mind in Title IX, the Court of Appeals applied what it thought to be a presumption that the availability of Title IX's implied right of action to enforce Title IX's own statutory prohibition of gender discrimination somehow should be taken to mean that Congress meant to preclude the use of Section 1983 to enforce constitutional rules against discrimination. Counsel, there's, there's a little bit of an air of unreality about all this, because, of course, Congress didn't provide a cause of action in Title IX to start with. And the reason they don't have all these limitations and restrictions is because they didn't put in the cause of action. We implied it from the statute, and so it, it seems kind of awkward to say, well, there are no limitations, um, as I said, when there was no cause of action. Well, I, I guess there, there are a number of points that I, I, I can make in response to that, Your Honor. First of all, I think what, what you say is absolutely right. Congress did not expressly provide a cause of action in Title IX. And so since, since the question in a preclusion case, the question whether or not Congress meant to preclude use of Section 1983, is whether there's a clear indication of congressional intent to do so, that there, as a matter of definition, that can't be present here. But, but before — Maybe the question ought to be whether this Court intended to uh, uh, have the Title IX action, which it invented, preclude uh, 1983. Why don't we look to the intent of this Court? Well, I, I, I think not, Your Honor. Uh, I, I think that — Would when, you agree when, that this Court invented the cause of action? No, I, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, I, I do think — and, and I, this is not my principal point, but, but I do think it's quite clear that if we're talking about what is the clear intent of Congress regarding preclusion of use of Section 1983, the fact that Congress did not expressly create a, a, a private right of action at all bears very significantly on that. Um, I, I don't at all disagree that Congress intended and expected that the courts would recognize a right of action under, under Title IX. But Congress actually in Title IX specifically, I think, addressed the preclusion question that we have here. There is clear statutory text that answers the question in this case in, in several respects. First of all, when Congress enacted Title IX, it specifically provided that — specifically contemplated that there would be continued private constitutional litigation challenging gender discrimination. It specifically authorized the Attorney General to intervene in private litigation whenever — and I'm here quoting from the text of the statute — whenever a suit is initiated in any court of the United States to assert rights deprivation of uh, equal protection under the, under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution on account of sex. And Congress, therefore, specifically contemplated, when it enacted Title IX, that there would be, there would, in fact, be constitutional litigation challenging gender discrimination on account of sex. And Congress surely knew that that litigation would proceed under Section 1983. Respondents — Did we rely on that provision in implying the right of action under Title IX? Uh, the, the, the Court did not. I mean, I think the, the, the Court — looked at what it took to be the general uh, the manifest congressional intent uh, when it enacted Title IX, but it's not specifically rely on, on that legislation. The legislation, of course, goes to whether or not Section 1983 suits are available, not to whether there's a Title IX applied right of action available. And as I say, in that, legisl in, in that legislative language, Congress made ex expressly clear that it intended and intended actually to facilitate by allowing the Attorney General to intervene in continued Section 1983 litigation to enforce uh, allegations of, of gender discrimination. Mr. Rothfield, 
I follow your argument entirely. And in, in the civil rights area, there are a lot of overlapping statutes you can sue under Title VII that doesn't take away your right under 1981. But in this case, if we get down to what this case is about, we have a determination by a court that the school district acted reasonably in relation to these complaints. And then you say, but we have a constitutional claim. Constitutional claim requires you to show deliberate intentional conduct if it's an individual. If you're talking about an institution, uh, some kind of not just one incident, but a custom, a pattern. What, when you get down to the merits, is different about those? In other words, is this on the wrong track to talk about precluding a statute instead of talking about just plain old issue preclusion? What is different about 1983? Yes, you have two claims, but if you lose under nine, you're going to lose under 1983 as well. Well, that, that, that is right, Your Honor, to the extent that the claims are identical and that they've actually been adjudicated. The, the First Circuit in this case resolved the Title IX claim focusing on deliberate indifference in response to, to pure and pure sexual harassment. And to the extent that there is a federal constitutional claim growing out of that conduct of the same sort, and to the extent that the elements of that claim are identical, then we agree that at that point that would be precluded. But we think that there is more to this case than that one issue that has been resolved. What more? What more is alleged in the complaint? I the complaint just spoke about deliberate indifference. Well, I, I, I guess there are, are two points, I mean, in response to that, Your Honor. First of all, I think that the complaint it can be taken to allege, in addition, more generic uh, — I hope I'm not responsible for that. Uh, but we'll give you an extra 10 seconds. I, and and I, I assure you I will, I will use it, Your Honor. Uh, the, the complaint, we think, should be taken also generally uh, in response to complaints of, of — of, Misconduct by um, individuals within the school. In a, well, after spell that out. Spell that out practically. I know you used. The well, I, I think, for, for example, Your Honor, we think that one thing that that could be developed and explored further is a disparate treatment of complaints. For example, a treatment of, of complaints of bullying by boys more favorably complaints of harassment by girls believing testimony of boys rather than believing testimony But there was no allegation at all of that kind in this complaint. Well, I, I, I agree that that was not set out specifically in the complaint. The complaint did say, in, in a general sense, that uh, Jacqueline Fitzgerald was denied equal access to the benefits of education. It, it said that the discrimination she suffered included but was not limited to sexual harassment. It asked for relief, injunctive relief, uh, to bar unconstitutional treatment, not only of Jacqueline Fitzgerald, but of all female students in the school, which I think — I mean, could you have brought a, a claim that they didn't let the female students play hockey under your complaint? I mean, that's additional discrimination. Well, I, I think — Didn't it have to be related to the particular fact? Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. I completely uh, — And is there any — you talked about you wanted some additional discovery. What? What is it that you could go to a district judge now and say, Judge, I have a basis here for asking — for discovery on a different but related theory? What, what, what words would you use? What would you write in that request? Well, I, there are a, a number of points I, I should make to the, in response to that, Your Honor. I, I think one is, just as a general matter, we think that that's something, this entire set of questions are, are things that are better resolved by the Courts of Appeals on, on uh, the Court of Appeals on remand. I think that there are, you know, there are unresolved constitutional The reason I ask is that, obviously, if this case happens to be a case in which, because of the finding that there was no intentional discrimination and the school board behaved properly, that if that's the finding, and therefore you have no claim under 1983 in respect to that, it becomes very theoretical to say that they went too far and said you might have no other 1983 claim because you would have some other well, 1983 let, 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 let claim, but we should dismiss this as improvidently granted and wait till somebody does this again. No, sir, I, I certainly I, I understand 
that suggestion, Justice Breyer, and let me give you two responses to that. First, a, a specific response to what could happen on remand. This is not a theoretical possibility. There was actually discovery that was requested uh, concerning uh, additional complaints, concerning additional di- disciplinary action against other students, concerning requests for bus monitors, as to which could have been developed that there was disparate treatment as to those. The respondents declined yeah, to I accept. still don't follow. What disparate treatment? Did you have to have uh, that they treated girls' complaints one way and boys' complaints another that, way? That, that would be one way in which the And as far as this record shows, there's just been this one incident of harassment. Okay, again, Your, Your Honor, I think one of the problems is that this case sort of went off the tracks at the earliest possible stage at the, at the time that the motion to dismiss was granted, and it could have developed in quite a different way. For example, the discovery was requested on these subjects that I, I mentioned to Justice Breyer, which, which could have been used to develop that, in fact, requests by boys were treated more favorably than requests by girls. Complaints by boys were responded to more, more favorably. that request here in the record? Excuse me, Your Honor? Is that request here? Uh, the, the discovery request? Yeah, do I have the request in the joint, in the, uh, do I have it in, in an appendix here? No, no, it, it, it is not. No, we don't even have it in front of us. You, you do not have it in front of you. But I, I, I can tell you that the request was made. The respondents declined to respond to it for, among other reasons, the, the, their assertion that it would not lead to the discovery of relevant evidence or admissible evidence after the 1983 preclusion ruling. And because of the preclusion ruling, that was not followed up because it would have been futile to try to develop additional argumentation in that, in that direction. Had, it, had the case not hopped the track at this point, the, the complaint could have amended, could have been amended, additional individual uh, defendants could have been added. The case could have gone on in, in quite a different direction. Mr. Rothfeld, we were, we were warned about all these problems in the brief in opposition, weren't we? That, that is Didn't correct. that focus almost entirely upon uh, the fact that there's no 1983 cause of action anyway? That, that is exactly right. And we right. nonetheless granted, uh, granted cert. Precisely the same arguments were made in almost identical language in the brief in opposition as are now being made uh, as an argument as to why this Court should decide the merits of the, of the 1983 claim or dismiss as improperly granted. The Court, I, I don't presume to tell the Court what it was thinking when it, when it granted review in the case, but it did presumably reject those arguments at that point, and there's no reason that they are, have, have any additional basis now. Uh, I, I, should I understand, also, I should also, Mr. Rothfield, that if you win on the question presented, you would agree that the, the arguments the other side makes on this, whether there's a cause of action under equal protection and so forth, that would remain open on remand. A- absolutely and correct. And you may still lose the lawsuit even if you win here. It, that, that, is, that is absolutely correct. Uh, that, the constitutional arguments were made on the merits to the district court and to the court of appeals. They were not addressed by either. The courts cut it short and threw the case out on preclusion grounds. And, and, I, and I think the way in which the court of appeals decided the case actually suggests that it was of the view that there was more in the case than simply the Title IX claims that have been rejected, because one would have thought that if the Court of Appeals was of the view that there is nothing to the case beyond the Title IX peer-on-peer harassment claim that has been rejected, it would have ended its discussion at that point. It would have said, we reject your Title IX claim. There is nothing more to your Section 1983 constitutional claim. That's the end of the matter. But it didn't do that. It decided the Title IX claim on the merits, rejecting it. And it then separately went on to address the Section 1983 constitutional claim and said, we're not going to address those merits at all. We're, we're going to say that they, those claims are precluded as a matter of sort of per se Title IX law, uh, because Title IX is preclusive. And therefore, one would think that the Court of Appeals had it in mind that there was more that could have been decided about the merits. But we'd find that out on remand. And we would find it out on remand. They made a basic legal error. That, you, that, may, you may have a losing case under 1983, but let the First Circuit decide that. that. That is absolutely correct. That is our We know that the First Circuit wasn't just thinking about the facts of this case in front of it when it said that there's no 1983 action. I mean, they didn't think there was no 1983 action for search and seizure. They must have had some idea of what the limitations of their saying no, 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 no 1983 action was. And so why do we know that they went beyond what they had in front of them in this case? I'm not saying they didn't. I just want to know what we, how we know that. Well, I, I think one of the problems, of course, we don't know for sure what they were, what they were thinking. And therefore, it makes sense, I think, for this Court, in the regular course of its practice, to decide the question presented and to send the case back down to the lower courts to look Well, you see, but, but, but the question presented, I guess, is — I'm trying to get the exact words, but — it's, it's whether the Title IX replaces a — what is it? It's whether — sorry. 
You have it right in front of you there. Whether Title IX precludes the assertion of constitutional claims for gender discrimination in schools under Section 1983. The, the, the reason that I think we know what you think they, they, they're referring to all of Title IX, no matter what claims, whether they're overlapping or not. Uh, I, I think that that is the language that the First Circuit used. The First Circuit said, in, in, in so many words, that Title IX is the exclusive avenue for the assertion of claims of gender discrimination arising out of rising in schools. Well, because they were relying on cases where we did say that a very detailed scheme was preemptive. They, they, they were relying on uh, one case in which the court said that in, in, in Smith versus Robinson, the only time in, in 140 years that Section 1983 has been on the books that, that this court has ever said that Congress meant to preclude its use to enforce a, a particular constitutional right. And, and, and I forget. And it did that because if you could use 1983 in this very elaborate mechanism that Congress had set up, who would use it? That, well, that, that, that's absolutely right. But I, 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 I'll add parenthetically that Congress promptly responded to the Court's decision in Smith by restoring just on, the remedy. On that, on just on that one issue on attorney's fees. Well, I, I think that the language it used is actually broader in, in, in the corrective legislation. But, but that, that's, as I say, is a parenthetical point. I, I, I think that something that we have here, which was not present in Smith at all, and, and as, you, as you say, Justice Ginsburg, it's, it's absolutely right that there is a much more elaborate, uh, involved administrative remedial scheme in the statute considered there. There's nothing remotely like that in Title IX. But before we even get to that point, there is this express evidence in the statutory text of Title IX that Congress did not mean to preclude use of Section 1983. First, there is the provision that I mentioned regarding the Attorney General, which, which expressly contemplates that there will be continued Section 1983 constitutional gender discrimination uh, after the enactment of Title IX. I think that in, an, in and of itself is positive, and, and, and it tells the Court all it needs to know. But beyond there, there is more. I mean, beyond that, there is the, the language of the anti-discrimination provision of Title IX, which was borrowed directly, is identical to the language of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, Congress dropped the phrase race, color, and national origin appears in Title VI and substituted sex in Title IX. And so the Court has recognized that Congress expected and intended that Title IX would be interpreted just as, as had been Title VI. Have there been any decisions on Title VI and 1983, whether there, there had been myriad such decisions. There, there had been, as, as we cite in our brief, as the American Bar Association cites in its amicus brief supporting us, the, the American Civil Liberties Union cites in its brief, there had been almost two dozen cases decided before the enactment of Title IX uh, in which courts allowed the simultaneous assertion of statutory discrimination claims under Title VI and Section 1983 discrimination claims under Title IX. There had not been a, a single suggestion by any decision that there might possibly be preclusion. And so at the time that Congress used the, the language of Title IX, it knew that that language had been uniformly, widely construed across the country to allow the simultaneous assertion of those claims not to preclude Section 1983 claims for, for discrimination. And so since when Congress, when, when, when legislative language has been the subject of judicial construction, and as, as the Court has said many times, uh, and Congress repeats that language in a new statute, uh, its expectation and intention is that the judicial construction is going to be taken as well. And so that, I think, is also dispositive of the question in this case, because Congress chose language that it necessarily knew uh, had, had been understood not to preclude the use of Section 1983. Um, and and, and I'll, I'll mention as well, just to sort of throw in the, the suspenders as long with the belt, an, an additional consideration that the Court of Appeals ignored here was the manifest legislative purpose of Section uh, of Title IX, which was to expand and strengthen protections against um, discrimination in schools. Well, uh, of course, Title IX is spending clause legislation, and that, under our precedents, uh, imposes certain limitations on how we interpret it that would not be applicable under Section 1983. Ab absolutely correct. And, and I think that there are... Well, the point is that that would then allow 1983 actions to circumvent those limitations on, on the Title IX remedy? Well, I, 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 I think not for a couple of reasons. First, first, as I say, there is this direct evidence of what Congress had in mind, that, that it, it specifically referred to constitutional litigation under the 14th Amendment when it enacted Title IX, and therefore, kind of by, by definition, it could not have been concerned about you know, evasion in that sense. But, but I think that there, evasion is not the word to use here, because on the one hand, there are statutory rights created by Title IX. On the other, there are pre-existing constitutional rights. Uh, and those constitutional rights are brigaded. I think it might be 
it's at least arguable that it would be harder to win a 1983 case given that as to the individual you have qualified immunity and as to the institution you have to show uh, custom or practice. Well, the only availability for individual liability is under the Constitution, because Title IX, at least as construed by the lower courts, uh, does not permit suits directly against the individuals, only against the institution, which, which I think is a, a significant distinction between the two and, and supports the argument that Congress could not have intended to preclude, because as the Court has recognized uh, repeatedly, the availability of individual liability you know, greatly adds to the, the, the deterrence, the effect of deterring constitutional violations. Uh, and th- the suggestion that when Congress enacted Title IX, it would have meant to have the perverse effect of allowing a school, by accepting federal funds, to insulate school policymakers from any personal statutory liability, you know, for even the most blatant and uh, in obvious acts of unconstitutional sex discrimination, would turn Title IX on its head. I think it is inconceivable that Congress could have had that intent in mind when it enacted a statute that was clearly designed to expand and strengthen protections against gender discrimination. Um, Make, make sort of two additional points, Your Honor. Um, as, I, as I suggest, I think the direct evidence in the statutory text, as well as the legislative purpose, is dispositive here, and the Court need not go beyond that to answer the question here. I mean, that leaves the question of how the Court of Appeals got the matter so far wrong. And, and I think that the reason that they did is, ignoring the text, they, they applied what they thought to be a presumption derived from this Court's decisions in cases like Smith versus Robinson and the Palace Ferries case, uh, that the creation of a new statutory right and a new statutory remedy uh, necessarily reflects a congressional intent to preclude the use of Section 1983 to enforce overlapping constitutional uh, remedies. There has never been such a presumption. The Court has said repeatedly, I think as was suggested earlier in the discussion, that when Congress creates new statutory rights and new statutory remedies, they are presumed to overlap with and to supplement existing statutory rights and remedies, uh, unless the two are positively repugnant to one another, unless they are inconsistent and can't be reconciled. That certainly is not the case here. The two, Section 1983 constitutional claims and Title IX supplement and complement each other, because the two statutes are, are by no means coterminous in, in who, can, who can be sued. Uh, the Court has certainly never presumed that the creation of a new statutory right and statutory remedy bars the use of Section 1983 to enforce the Constitution. Uh, as suggested by Justice Ginsburg's question, the Court has only once in well more than a century that Section 1983 has been on the books held that availability of the constitutional remedy had been precluded. Um, as I say, Congress promptly responded by providing that remedy. The Palace Verdes decision, which was the fulcrum of the Court of Appeals, uh, decision, I think, suggests what's wrong with its analysis. Palace Verdes involved a new statutory right, a new statutory action to enforce that right. Statutory action was limited in significant respects. And the Court concluded, as a matter of, of common sense, that one could infer from that situation Congress intended that the new right, uh, the, new, the new remedial system would be exclusive. Otherwise, plaintiffs could immediately go to court and, and render that system a, a dead letter. Uh, but as, as Justice Scalia pointed out in his opinion for the Court, that holding had no effect whatsoever on Section 1983. It meant that Congress had placed the new remedy outside of Section 1983's remedial framework, but that claims that were available prior to the existence of that new right, prior to the creation of that new right, remained available under Section 1983. And that is exactly the situation that we have here. Uh, the plaintiffs are not trying to allege a new statutory right that's outside Section 1983's remedial framework. Instead, they are asserting fundamental pre-existing constitutional rights. Um, they don't — I take it they don't have to bring these actions together. They can sue under Title IX. If they lose, then they can start a whole new lawsuit under 1983? Well, I, I think that to the extent, as, again, as suggested by Justice Ginsburg's line of questioning, to the extent that the claims are the same, then, then they would be precluded, the, the 1983 claim, if it has the same elements, if it's the same um, — Cause of action. It would be a different claim, but there would be issue preclusion. There would be issue that's, that's That's right. E- um, even if you have a different, I guess you would have a different set of defendants, right? You would have the school uh, in, in the Title IX case, the individuals in the 1983 action? Well, I, I think to the, to the extent that the uh, suit was initially brought against the school under Title IX for a type of claim that could have been brought 
you know, a parallel claim against the individual under Section 1983, and, and the Title IX claim was rejected. To the extent that the elements are the same, presumably there would be a defensive claim of collateral estoppel. And the official, I mean, it's the plaintiff who would be precluded. That's right. That's right. And the plaintiff has had a, a full and fair opportunity to argue those issues. That, 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 that's exactly correct. Um, if the Court has no further questions, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Ms. Hodge, we'll hear from you on behalf of the Barnstable School Committee. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Title IX provides for sex discrimination and provides a remedy for sex discrimination in a broader category of circumstances than the Equal Protection Clause. Therefore, having Title IX preclude Section 1983 equal protection claims does not deny petitioners in this or any other case any go remedy. Over, go over that again. I didn't understand that. You said Title IX provides Title more IX relief against sex discrimination than the Constitution does. Correct. Oh, explain that to me. Um, the Title IX prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. The Equal Protection Clause, or Section 1983 and the Equal Protection Clause require that additional intentional discrimination that this Court found in, in Personnel uh, Administrator of Massachusetts versus Feeney. We, we would suggest to the Court that Title IX actually covers a broad range of circumstances that may not involve that very specific intent required to perfect a constitutional violation. And clearly, if you look at the cases, the cases clearly involve a variety of instances which would not be sufficient under, say, a constitutional evaluation. Give me an example. An, evalu um, an example would be uh, the situation such as um, this, this particular situation. Recall that this is a case of peer-on-peer, student-on-student harassment. In this situation, the standard, as decided by this Court in Davis, is deliberate indifference. And what would the standard be under 1983? The standard under 1983 is also deliberate indifference, but it requires then that the deliberate indifference be shown to be not just the act of a school administrator who does not do what they should do in order to pursue a particular complaint, but rather there needs to be the specific intent to discriminate or a specific intent to um, um, choose boys over girls or girls over boys in that decision-making process. Yes, but if you lose on the, under Title IX, a fortiori, you would lose under the Constitution, I would think. I, I believe that, and that is, in essence, the position that the Barnstable School Committee and Superintendent Dever are arguing in this case. That is, that because deliberate indifference is the standard that is applicable both under Title IX and also under the Constitution, that it is, it is having lost the issue of deliberate indifference before the First Circuit, that finding of the First Circuit precludes any further controversy between the parties in this case. But they didn't go on issue preclusion. If they had done that, it would be a different case. They said that Title IX is preemptive of 1983. And they cited the cases where Smith against Robinson, where that is what the Court held. I believe, your, I believe, Your Honor, that we have a situation in which you have both claim preclusion, both preclusion under uh, Smith v. Robinson as well as issue preclusion, which makes it somewhat complicated, but I would suggest in this case, under these circumstances, because the issue is deliberate indifference and because there was a finding both as a legal matter as well as a factual matter of deliberate indifference that essentially uh, the two sort of collapse into one. With regard to Smith, I would point out to, uh, under the Smith theory, constitutional claims can be precluded if the, under, the statute under review is, has a comprehensive remedial scheme and we would argue that there is a comprehensive remedial scheme and that this Court has, in fact, sort of found that and even added to it in the development, have found that Congress intended to add to the remedial but scheme an implied right of action. You, you must, uh, I think, recognize that the 
elaborate scheme that Congress set up under the Education and the Handicapped Act is quite different from what this Court did. It just said there's a private right, right of action. There's an applied private right of action. Didn't set up any administrative mechanism. Didn't set up any regime for going to an agency first and then coming to a court. None of that. There is not. But I would suggest that that is appropriate under the circumstances that the, and I would also suggest that there is, in fact, an administrative scheme. The regulations that, in fact, in, that are, have been promulgated by the Office of uh, Civil Rights at the Department of Education, in fact, have a number of prerequisites and requirements. They impose a public You're not decision. arguing that the agency regulations have the effect of precluding a 1983 action? No. I'm, we're not arguing. We are arguing that some of those steps are illustrations of sort of the the, the scheme that was created, but there is a remedial the, re, the remedial scheme leads to the potential loss of federal. Of, of federal are, are you saying? Are, is this what you're saying? We imagine that we have an institution that is receiving federal assistance, okay? And we also imagine that somebody is claiming <coughs> that on the basis of gender, they've been excluded from participating in or denied the benefit of or be subject to discrimination. Now, you're saying it is impossible for anyone to imagine a circumstance in which it would be held. The defendant did not violate Title IX, but in which the Court held it did violate the Equal Protection Clause. There is no such circumstance. No one can imagine one. Is that what you're saying? Your Honor, what I am saying is I cannot imagine one, and I don't You cannot imagine one. You think no one can imagine one. So an obvious question uh, on rebuttal is, since we've limited to that universe, uh, would be the other side must imagine one. I believe that that is true. And I would point out that in response to the petitioner's argument today, they attempted to suggest that there may be some issues that were not discovered, that were not, in fact, fully uh, reviewed by the Court below. And I suggest that the First Circuit did, in fact, look at specifically that issue. And the First Circuit said in their decision that in looking at the equal protection claim in particular, that the petitioners offer, or in that case, they offer, the plaintiffs offer, no theory of liability under the Equal Protection Clause other than the defendant's supposed failure to take adequate actions to prevent and or remediate the peer-on-peer harassment that Jacqueline experienced. And I suggest to you that that is exactly the issue, that that, that is exactly uh, the issue. The issue is whether or not, if you look at the complaint, the claim that is being brought under Title IX and the claim that is being brought under Section 1983 in the Constitution are virtually identical, which is the second prong of the Smith test. If there's a comprehensive remedial scheme, again, it's a remedial scheme. And second, the question is, are the claims virtually identical? And I would suggest to you that the First Circuit found that they were virtually identical, and I would suggest that that is what leads to preclusion. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other claims that could be made with regard to others, but for the institution, it it is very important. Congress established this particular scheme under Section 19, uh, under Title IX, and it would be our view that Congress specifically and intentionally focused its, the responsibility for sex discrimination on the institution and on the institutional recipient of federal financial assistance. And that if you were to allow Section 1983 claims, that enforcement would not be nearly as equitable. We would point out that uh, it's obvious but it is important to consider that recipients of federal financial assistance include not only municipalities that run public schools, they include state entities, which under this Court's decision, uh, prior, under this Court's prior decision in Wills versus Michigan, are not subject to suit under Section 1983, and private entities that are not subject to 1983 at all. It, the ni- Does a disparate impact claim violate uh, Section uh, not Title IX? 
There, there, it, it is not 100 percent clear except for the following, and I would suggest this. Title IX prohibits discrimination if it were determined that a policy or other practice led to a denial of equal access to the benefits and, act in, and participatory activities of an individual student based upon their gender, I believe it is covered, and I believe it is discrimination, and I believe it is prohibited. And the fact of the matter is, though, that under the law as developed by this Court in the Equal Protection Clause, the fact of the matter is, is that it would not cover disparate impact, because this Court has held that Do you have any case in all of Title IX where that fits that abstract picture that you just described? I mean, you have to have a pattern and practice of what? A pattern and practice of discrimination to get, um, to get uh, under the Constitutional, under 1983. You have to have deliberate indifference to what? To the gender harassment, to the gender discrimination. So can you describe to me anything, any Title IX case that has a disparate impact? We really didn't want to, a Feeney-type case, we really didn't want this to happen, but we had a test and it came out that way. Well, I can believe you could describe a Title IX case that's like Feeney in that respect, where we didn't want this uh, diverse impact to occur. We really didn't want it at all, but it happened. I believe that the fact that it happens is sufficient discrimination to come under Title IX. I would point out to Your Honor that the Cannon case, in fact, involved uh, essentially uh, the dis- a disparate impact. Uh, type case, it dealt with admissions policies and the effect of the admissions policies on individuals. And consequently, I believe that it's not ethereal, it is quite real. But the difference is, is that the question becomes one of whether or not an individual based on their gender is being denied the benefits of and participation in the various On the basis activities. of gender. On the basis of gender. On the basis of gender. But I don't believe, see, uh, it, it, and Feeney says it wasn't on the basis of gender. It was on the basis that she wasn't a veteran. But, you see, I believe that the impact which would have been that an individual would not have been allowed to participate may be an additive factual conclusion which would go to the general discrimination issue. Um, the position that the argument that we are making to this Court includes the fact that since Title IX is as broad, if not broader, and I would suggest the following sort of visual picture. Well, there is, there is, um, you're leaving out something quite glaring with that res- in that respect. Uh, for example, single-sex schools, military academies, admissions to elementary and High schools are not covered by Title IX. Oh, you're absolutely correct, Your Honor. And under those circumstances, we would suggest that, as this Court found in Mississippi versus Hogan, that those institutions would then be subject to Section 1983 review, but on the heightened constitutional standard, which requires intentional uh, discrimination. And second of all, we believe that that is in, that that Mississippi is an illustration of the reason why the argument of petitioner regarding 2000H of Title IX, which deals with the fact that uh, that when they pass Title IX, they also reserve the opportunity for the Attorney General to become involved in a case. Um, under 1983, that the intention of that language was not necessarily to preserve 1983 in cases against recipients who are in fact covered, but it would have been to reserve the right of the Attorney General to to intervene in cases in which either the institution was not covered, because you're absolutely right, there are institutions which are not covered, and as you decided in Mississippi versus Hogan, they would be subject to Section 1983 and or individuals that the First Circuit recognized might, because they, if, they are, if they are state actors, that is not the case you have here, which was peer-on-peer harassment. But if you had a situation where, for example, a teacher or an administrator was in fact the alleged harassor, that a 1983 could be brought against the individual, and indeed the, the um, Attorney General could intervene in those cases. It's an individual. Uh, in the Title IX, you can't bring the suit. Correct. Right. But you could under 1983. 
Correct. Okay. But so I your, pro- your point, then, is, and that's why I've had trouble with this case, is that if you look at the First Circuit opinion, it sort of seems to say, if there's a difference, of course you can have a 1983 suit. But if there's no difference, you can't. And everybody here seems to agree to that, I guess. So I'm not certain what to do, because Celia started his opinion by saying this isn't a case where Title IX doesn't apply. It does apply. They have the funding. But he doesn't talk about the exemptions, and he doesn't really talk about the uh, a difference between suing an institution and suing an individual. So maybe what we should say is maybe he meant it, but he didn't say it. Well, I would argue, I would argue, of course, that I would hope that this Court would take, would, would affirm the First Circuit opinion, but I would say to, to, to Your Honor the following, that with regard to the individual defendant, in this case, who is the superintendent of schools, who may, who, as we argue, the question presented only deals with the institutional recipient, but nevertheless, the First Circuit found that the individual was acting only in their official capacity. And once again, that, dis- that issue is not before this Court. And having decided that they were acting in, their, in, in the individual's official capacity, we would argue, therefore, that the, that the individual would not be sued because the claim and all of the so, facts. So you're saying if it's an individual acting in his official capacity, you cannot sue him under Title IX? To the ex- yes. Yes, okay. Yes. And their answer to that, which now say, say look, we want to sue an individual in his official capacity. That's why we want to bring our 1983 suit. And then you reply, but there are bars here of collateral estoppel, uh, cl- claim preclusion. We used to, whatever. We used to preclusion. They all have new names. They do. Okay, that's your argument. So why don't we just send it back, say that's right. Uh, this suit is not precluded by 1983. Uh, indeed, that's the only place you can bring it. It's not precluded by Title IX. And now, Court, you go decide whether claim, claim preclusion exists, or whatever you call it. The court Lateral did. estoppel, or you understand what I mean. Your Honor, I believe that they did decide that, and the language that I did quote to you just a moment ago from the First Circuit opinion, which is found at um, the Appendix 23A, or the decision, uh, essentially they are, they are saying that um, that there was that because no theory of liability was offered other than this, that, that there isn't any further claim available. With regard to sending this case back, I, we argue based upon the deliberate indifference standard, which I think is indisputably the standard both under Title IX and the standard under uh, the Equal Protection Clause, that that deliberate indifference standard and the, and the um, fact that the First Circuit found that, that there was, that the Barnstable School Committee acted reasonably and without deliberate indifference, uh, precludes, there's no issue in controversy any longer. The, the other side says that there may be, and I don't know why we ought to get into that. Uh, yeah. why can't we just set it back and let them figure that out and, 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 and decide what we took this case to decide, namely, uh, uh, the split that now exists in the federal courts over whether uh, Title IX uh, precludes the use of 1983. That's an important question. It's why we took the case. Why can't we decide that issue and then, for all these uh, loose ends, send it back to the Court of Appeals? Because there must be an issue in controversy for this Court to send any — there must be an issue in controversy here and, and also — He says there's an issue in controversy. That's good enough for me. Well — well, it, with all due respect, mm. I would suggest that what you have to look at is the complaint and you have to look at the argument, you know, what was in fact argued. And I would suggest so, what, so what I'm sorry. So you seem to be saying that they're right, that 1983 actions are not always precluded, depending upon whether there's a difference in the issues that are presented or whatever. So you should never say that Title IX precludes an action under 1983. In fact, you should say that sometimes the issues that are litigated under Title IX may result in the fact that you don't have available, uh, you don't get relief under 1983, but there's still a cause of action. I don't, I don't believe that that is, that, 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 that it should, that should be the result of your decision making. It's kind I, of odd to say that, as I understand what you're saying, you're saying whenever there is issue preclusion, the consequence is that 1983 is 
precluded in the sense that uh, actions were precluded in Smith. Well, why do we even — I guess I'm getting, maybe I'm repeating the question. Why do we have to decide that? Um, uh, and we would just say there is a 1983 action, but you may not be able to pursue it, I guess is the way to put it, uh, if your claims are precluded or the issues result in the fact that you don't recover. I, I believe that that would be satisfactory. For, from our point of view, because the, we believe that the issue preclusion applies, that would be satisfactory because well, we but, should, that should but be that good doesn't, that doesn't cover the situation in which a plaintiff exactly. says, I don't want to proceed under Title IX. I want to proceed first under 1983. Then there's going to be no question about whether 1983 is, is uh, unavailable because of issue preclusion. He's starting with 1983. There's no question, but in those circumstances then, as to an institution. What's your position on those? Our position is, is that as a recipient of federal, if, if the institution involved is a recipient of federal financial assistance who is covered by Title IX. You can't proceed under 1983. You cannot proceed under so Section 1983. Yes, you are disagreeing. Oh, no, we are disagreeing. And I would suggest that the difficulty that this Court is having, or at least as I experience it, the difficulty with regard to issue preclusion and claim preclusion turns in this case on the fact that this perhaps yes, being a pure on isn't, isn't it quite clear that we can forget about issue preclusion and assume, as Justice Scalia did, that the plaintiff brought an action under 1983 and did not rely on Title IX at all and just sued the school board? You would say he can't do that. Correct. Yeah. And Correct. that's the issue, whether that's right or wrong. We don't have to talk about issue, issue preclusion to decide that issue. That is correct, except that as we argue, what we have argued before the Court is that under Smith, the question is, is there a comprehensive remedial scheme? And we would argue that there is. But then you have to determine whether or not the claims are virtually identical. And we would argue that here the claims are virtually identical. Wouldn't your reasoning apply to, uh, say, a race discrimination case in employment? You've got Title VII and you have 1981. Title VII has a lot of accoutrements, a lot of steps you go through. 1981 is plain and simple. So, therefore, Title VII ought to preempt 1981, right? So, you, in the area of race discrimination in employment, Title VII would um, end any access to 1981. It would be the same kind of argument, wouldn't it? I believe that there, that there is that argument, but to be honest, I'm not in a position right now to reflect on exactly. I believe that that would be certainly the direction However, there are unique aspects of race, and I believe that that is yet another basis on which I would quarrel with the petitioner with regard to suggesting that Title VI and, 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 and Title IX ought to be treated exactly the same. The history of, the, of sex discrimination versus race discrimination are quite different and separate. What, what has that got to do with what you were arguing? That is, you've got an elaborate mechanism which you said you have under Title IX, I think that's debatable. But that was certainly the picture in Smith, and it's the picture in Title VII, Title VII versus 1981. That, that fits your, the, your description, Title VII and 1981, much better than Title IX in 1983, I think. I, I guess I, I don't agree. <coughs> It is our it is it is our view that 19 that in this particular instance, and I and I think I, I may have misspoken. If the view is is that it's the administrative schemes that get compared, I I believe under Smith the issue is is whether or not there's a comprehensive remedial scheme. And here you have um, the remedy, the, both an administrative remedy as well as a private right of action, which we would argue uh, should preclude. The um, 1983 claims, moreover, we would also look with regard to the fact that this is a constitutional claim to the to Bivens, to the line of cases under Bivens, which we cite in our brief, the fact that when Congress provides a remedy for a particular area, in a particular area, that that remedy can preclude an independent action, which even if based on the Constitution. And we would suggest that that would be um, that that is something that we would urge this court to consider. Well, that's that's because we're still in the business of implying rights of action under Bivens. 
It's very different to say, you know, if you say we're implying it, um, but as soon as Congress does something, we're not going to do that. That's quite different than construing a provision like 1983 that Congress has enacted. Well, that is correct, except that this Court has, in fact, uh, applied its preclusion doctrine by looking at whether or not Congress has made any statement in the statute. I mean, then if you want to take it statute to statute, then what you would be looking at is you would be looking at essentially Rancho Palos Verdes. And as as this Court did in um, — when it decided Rancho Palos Verdes, it remanded for consideration Communities of Equity, which is a Title IX case, uh, for reconsideration by, I believe it's the Eighth Circuit, under the Rancho Palos Verdes decision. And while that case ultimately did not uh, come back to this Court, the, the um, Circuit Court determined that it treated, it treated the issue differently, and we would argue that that is a part of this split and that that is, that, that, that is not the appropriate uh, resolution. There was no constitutional claim in, uh, what was this, Palace Verdes? Exactly. There was no constitutional claim in Rancho Palace Verdes. However, this Court did cite Smith and did um, cite Smith in its decision, and, and, and favorably so. But moreover, we would argue that the question is really if you're comparing a, a statute to a statute, which is Title IX to Section 1983. Congress allowed for actions in Section 1983. Congress allows for actions under Title IX. Or whether or not you're really look, looking at the issue as Title IX versus a constitutional claim. Now, I want to just make the point that preclusion makes sense. Congress really did put the focus in Title IX on the institution, and Congress is also seeking to have equity of enforcement. Further, as set forth in the amici in support of the uh, respondent's position, we would point out that if Section 1983 claims are not precluded, that it will require the expenditure of funds by by recipients of federal financial assistance on a variety of issues that are totally unnecessary, including qualified immunity. And in the peer-on-peer harassment case, and I think it's very important to focus on what this case is. It is a peer-on-peer, it's student-on-student harassment, where what you would have is if you are going to allow additional claims under Section 1983 against the institution. It would, it would intrude and interfere with the school's processes of disciplining students. And I would also suggest that it might also interfere in the classic manner. In let me ask you one sort of anomaly that keeps running through my mind in this case. If you have two school boards, one of them, two schools, uh, state schools, one of them gets federal funds and the other does not. There's no 1983 remedy against one, but there is a 1983 remedy against the other. That's your view, isn't it? It is exactly our view, because uh, the recipient would be subject to the remedial scheme set right. forth in Title IX. Isn't it sort of anomalous to think it? I don't believe it's anomalous. I believe the reverse is anomalous, because what you would be suggesting, if you do not preclude Section 1983, you would suggest that the recipient can have both a 1983 and a Title IX, whereas the non-recipient right. would have just Section 1983. But you'd the same facts in both cases. I mean, I, I, the, the cases involve the same evidence, same alleged wrongdoing. And in one case, you can rely on 1983, and the other you can't. I believe under those circumstances, um, Justice Stevens, that what we would be talking about would be the situation where, a under Title IX, there is it, there's actually an easier path to recovery, if you will, because it does not require the specific intent required by Massachusetts versus Feeney, which we believe sets a slightly higher um, a higher bar and a higher level of intentionality. I thought you just said that it was. A deliberate indifference under both statutes, under 1983 and Title IX. Your Honor, it is it, deliberate indifference is the standard. However, in order to prove a constitutional violation, you must also have the specific intent for invidious discrimination that we that this court has not imposed and did not impose in Davis for uh, violations of peer on, for peer on peer harassment cases. So while the discrimination needs to be intentional under Title IX, it is not required that there be the specific intent to favor one over the other or one's protected status over the other. And you wouldn't have gen- gender discrimination. But you might. 
excuse me, I'm sorry, you would have gender discrimination if you have a typical, uh, in the peer-on-peer harassment cases, the question is whether or not the institution um, was or was not deliberately indifferent in the manner in which it responds. In, in a deliberate indifference case. Response to what? To a complaint of discrimination, to a complaint about sexual harassment. If the institution fails to respond appropriately, the, the lower courts have found that that can be gender discrimination under Title IX. They do not in any way look to ensure that, look to determine whether or not there's that specific invidious discrimination that we would argue this Court has imposed in its cases under the Equal Protection Clause. So you wouldn't have, uh, if you work for a municipality, and your boss has been harassing you, you would not have a case under 1983? If you were a municipality and, and the, your boss was harassing you, and in a, school set, in a school setting by a recipient of federal financial assistance? Well, you were saying the constitutional standard is different, so I was just giving you a case. Could be a school, could be another another municipal employment it would you would need to have the specific intent invidious intent that we believe is an additional element and a much harder uh, element uh, to prove in that situation thank you ms hodge uh, mr rothfeld you have five minutes remaining thank you your honor i'll try not to use my extra ten seconds um, two principal points. First, on the proper disposition of this case. Uh, the, the First Circuit's holding, and I'm reading from page 24A of the petition appendix, the comprehensiveness of Title IX's remedial scheme indicates Congress sought Title IX as the sole means of vindicating constitutional right to be free from gender discrimination perpetrated by educational institutions. It follows that the plaintiff's equal protection claims are precluded. Uh, that was not a holding that had to do with claim preclusion, issue preclusion, collateral estoppel. It was a holding that constitutional claims simply cannot go forward. So there are constitutional claims that were advanced below, argued to both courts, have not been discussed by any court at any point. And I think the proper disposition here, the court's regular course, in a case of this sort, is to decide the question presented, send the case back. Uh, it, it certainly is not the case. It, it's, a, it's a commonplace that the court has threshold questions that are presented to it. There are remaining issues that have to be resolved on, on remand. It's certainly not the Court's usual practice to decide whether or not the plaintiffs can, can prevail on those claims on the remand before deciding the threshold questions on which cert was granted. So I think that's the appropriate pro- approach for the Court to take here. Uh, on the merits, very quickly, uh, again, I think we have sort of the, the gold standard of evidence as to preclusion. We have expressed statutory text that deals with it. Uh, my, my learned colleague suggested that the Attorney General intervention provision is somehow limited to cases involving claims by schools that, that don't accept federal funds or somehow are not subject to Title IX. That is not the language of the provision. The provision says whenever, whenever a claim is, is initiated in a court of the United States asserting deprivation of rights to equal protection on account of sex, the Attorney General can intervene. Clearly, Congress had it in mind that there would be such claims. And this was enacted as part of Title IX. This was enacted as part of a statute that creates uh, rights against discrimination by, by schools receiving federal funds. It, can't, it makes no sense to suggest Congress well, this, does that provision apply only when there is a Title IX cause of action? No, no, no. It, it is. So, well, if it doesn't, then it then it then it has validity, whether or not you uh, agree with your with your position. That that's true, but I, I think it answers the preclusion question because it suggests that Congress had it in mind that there would in fact be Section 1983 constitutional litigation involving gender discrimination. Yeah, but, but maybe they thought only in cases where there is no Title IX action. They said whenever. Uh, there is a claim of, of unconstitutional gender discrimination. I, I think it, it's a blanket suggestion Congress believes that there is. Oh, you, you don't think they mean whether there's a, there, there's a valid claim, even when there's a claim that isn't allowed under the law? Hmm? No, I'm, I'm suggesting that, that the, the, the language says that whenever a claim of gender discrimination is advanced under the Constitution, uh, the Attorney General can intervene. I, I, what we draw from that is that Congress imagined that there would be continued constitutional litigation involving gender discrimination after the enactment of Title IX. And because that provision was added to the law as part of Title IX, Congress surely contemplated that these suits would involve gender discrimination involving schools. The, the, the other sort of clear textual indication, which, I, again, my, my learned colleague has not really discussed, is the Title VI 
uh, history of enforcement prior to the enactment of Title IX, which, which was absolutely consistent. There were almost two dozen such decisions, which this Court suggested in canon it is not only appropriate but realistic to think that Congress was aware of at the time it enacted Title IX. Those decisions clearly indicated that there was no preclusion. The language of Title VI and Title IX is identical. There can be no doubt, I think, that Congress would have had it in mind that preclusion is not appropriate in this context as well. And one, one final very quick point. This is an implied right of action to suggest that Congress meant to preclude the use of the Constitution to enforce the Constitution, uh, preclude use of Section 1983 to enforce the Constitution, while leaving it to the courts to imply the alternative remedy and to devise the contours on and, and the, uh, the limitations on that remedy would require, a, hypothesize a remarkable leap of faith on the part of Congress. It also would require the most extravagant uh, and speculative reading of, of Title IX to, take, to understand it not only to include private rights of action, but to preclude the assertion of express rights of action created by Congress by language in another statute. If there are no further questions, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. Um, Mr. Rothfeld, we apologize for the malfunction. We'll fix it.